to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. My name is Lindsay Devon. I am Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. I also serve as Editor-in-Chief of Pharmacotherapy, an official journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Today, I'm with Alyssa Peckham about their paper entitled Predictors of Gabapentin Overuse with or Without Concomitant Opioids in a commercially insured U.S. population. Dr. Patton is an assistant professor of pharmacy practice at Midwestern University in Glendale, Arizona. She is currently engaged in research on gabapentin abuse with the goal of developing a unified approach to tighter regulation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Beckham. Hi, Dr. Devon. Thank you for having me. Um, it's certainly an interesting topic and one that's gained a lot of interest lately. Um, but before we get started, I did want to recognize my co-authors, Drs. Kirk Evoy, um, Jordan Covey, Leslie Oaks, Kathleen Fairman, and David Sklar, some of whom have worked with me on various gabapentin abuse-related manuscripts, so I wanted to recognize them for their ongoing contributions as well. So thank you for having me and for having us. Um, thank you for being here. I'd like to discuss your, your research article, your latest one, um, Predictors of Gabapentin Overuse with or Without Steroids. But um, before we discuss um, overuse issues, can you briefly describe the pharmacology of gabapentin, uh, perhaps mention its approved indications, and uh, our listeners would like to hear, you know, why is it that uh, there seems to be such a range of off-label uses that makes this drug so extensively prescribed? Of course. Um, so, so gabapentin is a structural analog of our inhibitory neurotransmitter GABA. So it binds to our alpha-2 delta subunit of the voltage-gated calcium channels, which will then lead to a decreased influx in calcium into the presynaptic neuron, which results in less neurotransmitter release into the synaptic cleft. So I think that's no surprise. It's in line with its mechanism of action that it was originally designed as an anti-epileptic medication, which is one of its FDA-approved indications. It's also demonstrated some effectiveness in treating post-herpetic neuralgia, so pain, which is its other FDA-approved indication. However, aside from this, it's been used in as many as 40 off-label indications. Some of the most common that um, listeners might recognize is adjunct therapy in anxiety, um, insomnia, depression, other types of pain syndromes um, other than post-herpetic neuralgia, um, restless leg syndrome, hot flashes, etc. Some of the less common um, indica- or off-label indications that you might see are adjunctive therapy in bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, headaches, etc. So there's a wide, la- wide range of off-label indications that you'll see gabapentin prescribed for. Most oftentimes it is off-label. Uh, Dr. Packer, let me ask you one more uh, background question. Um, your review uses the term overuse. Um, I assume this term has a somewhat different meaning from the term abuse. Um, if, if this is true, uh, could you just define these terms for our listeners? Yeah, of course. So our studies tended to use the word overuse, and at times you might even see the word misuse rather than abuse because we cannot confidently say that the patients identified in our studies, so the ones that had high doses of gabapentin greater than, you know, let's say 11,000 milligrams per day, were the ultimate users of the drug. 
So what I mean by that is that there's always the possibility that drugs are being diverted, right? So we need some sort of market infrastructure when drugs are subject to abuse. Therefore, um, we chose to say either overuse or misuse because yes, the patient is either overusing the medication by consuming it to a level of excess that is beyond clinical reasoning, or they're misusing the medication by illegally diverting it. However, are they themselves abusing it? Can I confidently say that they're the ultimate user? No, I can't. So therefore, given the possibility of diversion amongst some of these patients that we identified, we chose to not classify the patients as abusers at this time. That, that was very helpful. Uh, your research paper indicates 10 million prescriptions were dispensed for gabapentin in uh, 2016, and this is a, a substantial exposure uh, to this drug in the population. I think it would seem logical to know the drug is being overprescribed or overused, as you uh, discussed, but I think also having uh, unbiased evidence um, is not always uh, scientifically easy. So could you describe your approach or the methodology that you used and how you investigated this issue of overuse? So we haven't actually started to look at trends in prescribing habits of gabapentin just yet, though it is on our docket for the near future. But what I can say is that the rise in prescribing of gabapentin, which you know has been identified before, the rise in prescribing of gabapentin is not necessarily in, entirely the prescriber's fault. We, I think it's well known that there's a long history with the pharmaceutical company dating back to gabapentin's first few years on the market or so where some illegal marketing practices took place. When that happened, this flooded the literature and the minds of clinicians with false pretenses, I guess I wanna say, that gabapentin was useful in some indications, although the data did not necessarily support these claims. Now, steps have been taken to retract these claims However, it, it kind of seemed as if the damage was done and we're still today working to overcome these overinflated claims of gabapentin's usefulness. But on top of that, about a decade later from when all of that occurred, clinicians were then faced with managing their practice, specifically those practicing in uh, pain management in any capacity in the midst of an opioid epidemic. So this forced clinicians to be more weary of their opioid prescribing habits which then forced them to look beyond opioid analgesics to treat various pain syndromes that their patients were presenting with. Now, gabapentin seems like an, an attractive alternative because there's literature to support its potential use in various pain syndromes, which still lingers from the pharmaceutical company's marketing strategies. And overall, it's perceived as a seemingly benign drug with low abuse liability. Therefore, clinicians took to this medication as a safe alternative, so it's very likely that you're correct in your prediction that drug exposure, so, you know, i.e. increased prescribing, has certainly influenced this new discovery of gabapentin as a medication of abuse or an opioid potentiator amongst patients. So we haven't necessarily teased it out, but that's our hypothesis, and, and we're also going to be doing that in the very near future. I'm sure your research is going to enlighten a lot of uh, prescribers uh, and potential patients uh, as well. Uh, what's so interesting about your research is that uh, you've investigated uh, use of gabapentin either alone or also with uh, opioids. And you kind of referred to that as a opioid potentiator in your last couple of comments. So 
can you uh, describe your principal findings? I mean, what kind of differences in results did you find between these two situations of gabapentin alone and gabapentin um, when used with opioids? Yeah, um, so, so among patients treated with gabapentin alone, the likelihood of sustained overuse was low at around 2%, but when we saw patients concomitantly treated with gabapentin and opioids, 11.7% of these patients met criteria for sustained overuse. So there's a big gap there in our percentages, but this was in line with a previous analysis that we conducted that looked for patients who had at least three um, prescription claims within the same 12 month period that exceeded um, dosage thresholds. And what we found was, again, patients co-prescribed gabapentin and opioids, 24% of them met criteria for at least three claims in a 12 month period exceeding these dosage thresholds as compared to only 3% of our patients that had gabapentin only and 8% of our patients that had opioid only. So again, a big gap. So we were, you know, for lack of a better term, happy that these results were at least in line with one another, but unfortunate that, you know, we're seeing gabapentin as a potentiator. So with that, our ultimate goal was to, um, you know, profile, let's say, these patients that we should be looking out for. And what we found was that patients co-prescribed opioids and gabapentin are at a greater risk of gabapentin abuse rather than those prescribed gabapentin alone. So we are not, our message is not to say that gabapentin is an abusable drug to any individual that takes it. We are really honing in on the patient population that also has opioids. This was especially true in patients that also had a history of addiction or abuse. So the takeaway message is more so for the clinicians who are either initially evaluating the patient um, when they're thinking through treatment options, you should, you should ask yourself, does this patient have a history of abuse? And is this patient already taking opioids? If you can answer yes to, I, to both of those questions, this is the scenario where we expect potential for future abuse to be higher than someone who can either answer no to one or both of those questions. Well, there's a certainly substantial differences between um, those, those two groups. Um, I think you've addressed the, the next issue that I'd like to ask you about already, but you know, from the standpoint of a clinical pharmacist or a physician or another um, healthcare uh, professional, there some specific predictors that uh, could be monitored to alert them that gabapentin overuse or abuse might be becoming a problem? Yeah, um, so following up from our last question where I discussed things to look for when you're either initially meeting a patient or re-evaluating their pain regimen, there are things um, to look for when you're monitoring your patients long-term. So let's say uh, you know, a clinician has a patient that um, has a history of addiction and is on opioids, but they are, they are positive that gabapentin is going to help them and it is clinically justified. You can identify abuse that occurs at some point during the course of treatment by using the same techniques that you would when you're suspicious of drug seeking, such as for you know, pain management patients that are seeking opioids. So major red flags of drug seeking behavior, typically as it relates to opioids and pain syndrome are patients present that are overly familiar um, with pain medication options such that they're advising you on exactly which medication they want, they know the strength and they know the exact quantity that they need. It's usually a major red flag. 
Another one is when patients express um, multiple pain medication allergies such that you're left with um, very limited options. So I think a, a lot of us have kind of experienced that patient where nothing except Dilaudid works for them, right? That's usually a red flag. Um, another one is when patients are unwilling to consider other treatments, especially um, non-pharmacologic treatments like physical therapy, and you may even observe changes in their behavior when these other treatment modalities are suggested, such as they become um, irritated, um, aggressive, frustrated, etc or um, they might have inconsistencies in their subjective reporting of the history of their pain syndrome, so how it came about, the onset, um, the duration, where it radiates to, et cetera, that might all be inconsistent from visit to visit. And then finally, um, one, of the, one of the biggest red flags is that the patient either sees multiple doctors specifically for pain, or they have recently been released from another doctor's care, which would also be very suspicious. Um, all of these behaviors would at least raise my suspicion that this is a potentially drug-seeking situation. And although this is historically used for opioids, I think that these, um, these fit very well within the means of evaluating gabapentin drug-seeking, especially if these patients are also already on opioids. Oh, uh, thank you. I think our listeners will probably find this comments very helpful in monitoring patients. Uh, I, I mentioned in the introduction um, uh, that one of the goals of your research is to uh, develop uh, appropriate regulation of uh, gabapentin. Um, it sounds like you have a very comprehensive um, research program. So, you know, we don't know where your uh, research uh, efforts are leading you. Uh, certainly. So, that, so this is the most exciting part is when we when we start to see our research unravel into something that can you know help patients and make a change, but. Um, so far, our team has reached out to uh, various regulatory agencies, including the FDA, the CDC, the DEA, um, primarily over the months of about October 2017 to January 2018, where we've sent our research and we've really put out these calls to this emerging public health concern. Now, um, it wasn't until February of 2018 where the commissioner of the FDA announced in a press release that was primarily targeted at discussing the opioid epidemic, but he also brought in the fact that he has now tasked an internal team of researchers to look into gabapentinoids, so gabapentin and pregabalin, as medications that may be used to potentiate opioid high and medications that have abuse liability. So I'm very much looking forward to their findings. But additionally, I've been working on healthcare policy manuscripts that really map out state-initiated regulatory changes related to gabapentin. So, so far, Kentucky has been the only state to formally reclassify gabapentin as a Schedule V medication, and that legislation is also ongoing in Tennessee and forthcoming. Though in my conversation with representatives in that state, it, it's more likely going to be approved than not. So Tennessee will potentially be the second um, state to reclassify gabapentin as a Schedule V medication. Other than that, um, there's been an additional eight states that have incorporated mandatory gabapentin monitoring into their local PDMP, so prescription drug monitoring programs, so that they can gather more information before they make that legislative jump, like Kentucky and Tennessee. Um, those states were um, Minnesota, Ohio, uh, Virginia, Wyoming, West Virginia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, and Nebraska. Now, Kansas and New Jersey are in the midst of making changes to, to join that group of states that employed the, mon uh, the mandatory PDMP monitoring. 
but two states to look out for that have um, changes upcoming in the near future, and I don't know what those changes will be, um, is the state of Washington and Hawaii, as they're in current deliberation, and I'm kind of excited to see where they're gonna take it, if they're gonna do the Schedule 5 jump or the PDMP reporting. But ultimately, um, regardless of what the individual states are doing, we, we truly do need federal oversight on the regulation of gabapentin rather than the piecemeal approach that we're currently taking. So I'm hoping that the findings from the FDA will corroborate mine and they'll implement, uh, implement regulatory actions such as federally reclassifying gabapentin as a schedule five, like pregabalin already is, it's sister drug in the same class. But if their findings are not as robust as mine, I at least hope that they label gabapentin as a drug of concern. So that way they can urge all the states and jurisdictions to require monitoring of gabapentin dispensing via their local PDMPs. Um, this way we can continue to collect information on this potentially public health concern and make a more unified informed decision as a nation in the near future. Sounds like there are a lot more chapters in the story that you have to tell. So, uh, Dr. Peckham, um, thank you for explaining the background uh, to your uh, research paper today. And uh, it's been very helpful and interesting work. And I uh, appreciate you submitting and publishing your paper in pharmacotherapy. Uh, I'll that your complete research article can be found on the pharmacotherapy website. And uh, thank you and your co-authors for um, this uh, interesting podcast. Thank you so much. Great. Thank you for having me and thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.